0: I'm Karl Coleman. I am Kevin Johnson.
1: I'm Cassidy Hall, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash Encountering Silence that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash silence, to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence
0: into our all-too-noisy world. This week, part two of our conversation with Kathleen Norris.
1: things society deals with today is the the religious nuns so to speak right the N O N E S nuns okay. I I forget what book this is from but you talk about a story in which someone approached you and said i just don't understand how you can get so much comfort from a re- religion whose language does so much harm and you said i realized that what troubled me most was her use of the word comfort mm-hmm. so in my reply i addressed that first i said that i didn't really think it was comfort i was seeking or comfort that i found Look, I said to her, as a rush of words came to me. As far as I'm concerned, this religion has saved my life, my husband's life, and our marriage. So it's not a comfort that I'm talking about, but salvation. And that was just so powerful. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and again, it's my experience. And, right. and other people have right. really negative experiences that they have to contend with. Um, with religion, with being... Um, you know, bullied or oppressed feeling oppressed by religion or even abused as, as we all know in, in it, all the churches now are, are contending with that but there are people you know and I guess there's this question that a lot of people have has the religion done more harm than good mm-hmm. and some people will be on the side of, oh it's obviously done more harm and I'm on the side no it's obviously done more good and is doing more good for people mm-hmm. uh, than harm and that's a worldwide a worldwide phenomenon that so many people are finding meaning in their lives, they're finding something to to hang on to that it isn't about the afterlife it's about living a more fulfilling life here and now, Mm. and I think a lot of people do find that
1: yeah So. yeah, definitely and obviously Benedictine monastic life specifically has been a huge influence in your writing totally
2: unexpected, I mean I grew up in my my great grandfather and grandfather were both Methodist preachers. I grew up in a Protestant environment, and I really wasn't aware of monasteries even existing. When I studied art history, I I, I sort of knew what a monastery used to be, like in Europe, and mm-hmm. you would have the art and all of that. So I was aware of that, and then but then finding these incredible hospitable people. Mm. Um, who were just doing this thing that they'd been doing for basically about 1800 years now and they just are doing it every day and I just it blew me away and also it was the liturgy the 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 poetry of the psalms to enter poetry every day and sing it and say it yeah and then kind of come back to my regular life um It just struck me as extraordinary. And of course, Benedictines are known for their hospitality. So they really, if you're interested in in going to church with them, especially, they're hospitable to everyone. But I really started to develop these friendships and a real respect for their way of life that was totally unexpected. I had no idea who these people were, what they were about. And once I discovered it, it, it really did change my life. Mm -hmm. And I think for the better, like I said, it really helped me with my marriage, it helped my husband. He'd had a very difficult relationship with the Catholic Church for most of his life, and Mm -hmm. um, his friendships with monks were wonderful for him, to be comfortable, uh, again, with some church. Mm -hmm. Anything having to do with the Catholic Church. that made him happy and and happy, uh, made him happy and feel like he had friends there was a really, really big step for him.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And not all Experiences of silence and obviously experiences of religious life are necessarily helpful or useful as we're exploring. Right? Well, and um, one
2: monk, one monk, years ago, one monk said, "You know, but you have to realize that mo- that our life is really boring. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it really is boring, except for Easter." We do we do the same thing every day. We mm. you know. Uh, in fact, I hear one wonderful story from a monastery where they decided their life was getting a little too boring. They had a cook who was very un, uh, uninventive inventive and to And he was one of the brothers, I think. And to make life easier for him, he would cook the same thing every day that week. So on Tuesday, it would be ham and eggs. On Wednesday, it would be this or that. And they finally said, no way. We cannot, we have enough of this regular routine in our lives. We're not going to go with this. So they they basically got him another job in the monastery, and they hired a cook Mm. who could provide a little more variety for them.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: that was a little bit too much regulation. (laughs)
1: Yeah. <laughs> um i wonder as as a female or writer um have you experienced uh, any toxic or dysfunctional that defun- uh, toxic side of silence and and what have you learned from silence's shadow side so to speak
2: yeah, in fact, I'd like to write more about this sometime because one of the formative things for me as a writer, an essay that I found, was the writer Tilly Olson. Yes, yeah, silences. The, the, the silences, where where silence was a very negative thing for her. She was silenced because she found herself as a. A, a single mother with a couple kids to raise and so she had to work and she was, obviously her vocation was writing but she couldn't practice it because she was silenced for years just from the necessity of making a living and she did do I think two or three novels you know mm-hmm. I think I've read at least one of them was it The Dollmaker that she wrote or something mm-hmm. I read. I know I've read at least one of her novels but that essay really struck me as yes mm-hmm. there are some silences that are very negative and especially for women mm-hmm. And I also think there's a lot of self-censorship for women. That mm-hmm. They don't want to put themselves out because they feel like they'll get knocked down. Mm-hmm. And and that's probably changing a bit since Tilly Olsen's time. I mean, I think she was writing in the 30s or 40s. But it's still a problem. Um, silence certainly can be, if somebody feels silenced, that is a negative mm-hmm. thing. If someone enters silence willingly and learns from it, and you know, uh, that's a uh, it's a gift. I mean, that's that can be wonderful. But mm-hmm. that's either self-imposed censorship, silence, or a silence that is imposed by someone else. Mm-hmm. Just, hey, shut up! You know right. that kind of thing, which women, I think, uh, unfortunately, hear all too often. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, it reminds me of when you talk about utilizing, um, some, some of the the Benedictine values, you know, in, in all of your life, obviously as a, as a writer and, but specifically the phrase about how you talk about hospitality towards the reader. Oh yeah. And I love just that idea of, um, cause you talked about sometimes it means kind of censoring our ego or, you know, kind of toning. Or, or trying to
2: figure out what the reader needs from you. Mm-hmm. And that's a challenge. And I think, I, I mean, I sometimes I'm, I don't work as a writing coach or anything, but I do sometimes help people with their writing. And there's one person in particular who's still, even though he's not young, he's still in his 60s, but he still is gushing. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of self-expression. And I said, you have to think about what the reader needs. And he said, oh, I never thought of that. And I'm thinking, what's <laughs> the point? I yeah. mean, it's fine if you're writing a diary or you're writing for yourself. That right. doesn't matter. But if you expect other people to read it, you know, and it took me a while to get there. I think all yeah. writers start out with this sort of self-expression. They, they they want to get their feelings out. I mean, that's mm-hmm. any te- talk to any teenage writer. That's what they're doing, mm-hmm. um, or that's what they think they're doing. But once you start thinking about the reader, it all changes. You, you start to think... Um, Okay, what does the reader need to hear from me? And maybe this fact or this little detail means a lot to me, but it's superfluous. It, mm-hmm. doesn't, it won't mean anything to the reader. It's not necessary. Mm-hmm. And it gets jettisoned. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a lot of um, gushing and then taking back, kind mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: you say structure, structure, I'm sorry. structuring a life around writing is as crazy as structuring a life around prayer.
2: Yeah, and the world <laughs> doesn't care if you do it. That mm-hmm. that's, It has to be self-motivated, and mm-hmm. I think that's one of the hard things about it. And that's one of the reasons I think monasteries uh, exist, because everybody's doing it together, mm-hmm. whereas writers don't really have that luxury. Writers are pretty much on their own to actually write. Yeah, But I think that's one of the secrets of monasteries, that if you know everybody's going to be there at morning prayer at 7, then you show up at 7 too, because everyone's going to be doing Mm-hmm. doing that it, it does it does uh, take the burden off in a sense and you, you realize the world doesn't care mm-hmm. if I go to morning prayer or if I write another book it's just true the world really doesn't care Yeah, and it's, the world's not going to make it easy for you to pray or to write mm-hmm. but if that's what you have to do that's what you're doing yeah
1: and in the Cloister Walk when you explore the, the, the ceremony of liturgy and You talk about how silence distinguishes both the poem and the prayer. And you also go on to say good liturgy is a living poem and ceremony is the key.
2: Yeah, that was a real revelation to me when I began to realize, and I think it probably was here, that liturgy itself is a poem. That the daily liturgy of the monastery plus the Eucharist, the Mass, it really functions like a poem during Mm -hmm. the day that you know you're going to be entering this realm again of the mystery and the Mm -hmm. poetry and all of that. And then you're going to go and do your chores and do whatever else you're doing. But there is a, a certain poetic quality to it mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. really refreshing, and I think that's one of the big appeals to me. Always was that it was the poetry that drew me in. Mm-hmm. And one of the monks said, "You know, most of us don't even realize we're reciting poetry." And I said, "Well, that's too bad because I'm, you know, it's it's what it's <laughs> what's keeping me coming back." Yeah, you know. Yeah, and for other people, it's other things.
1: Um, okay, so my last thing is just a note of humor because I love how you write about the humor of monks and um they're pretty wild i tell you in particular i laughed out loud um about the jurassic park monastic part monastic. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah so let me share just, that story. and that's the kind of thing now now at certain meals they're going to be reading a book and there's a lot of silence mm-hmm. um like uh and here you this is such a large place and they're surrounded by a lot of people they don't, it, it's very rare to get invited to the monastic refectory mm-hmm. but a place where I'm an Oblate it's, a, it's, a, it's smaller and a lot less formal, um, they need to do that here but out there um, this breakfast is silence. I think, I think there's some reading uh, maybe at the evening meal so there's it's a little structured. You have you have silence during the reading and a little silence afterwards. And then there's certain times of visiting, but usually lunchtime there, lunchtime you can visit. You sit there and visit with the monks. And you know, that was one of the things that, that came up was let's invent monastic park. And mm-hmm. um, you know, they would say brother and so and so, brother this and that, father this. I mean they had all these these different names. And mm-hmm. I remember one time there's I do recommend movies. Yeah. To them because they watch they pretty much watch movies every Saturday night and mm-hmm. uh, and, and they make popcorn and sometimes drink beer. It's a mm-hmm. it's a time honored monastic tradition, I guess. <laughs> and not everybody comes to the movies. I mean mm-hmm. but but there's a number of them that like films and I love films. Mm-hmm. So I'm always recommending things. And um uh, one time I said there's this really great movie by John Sayles, it's Brother from Another Planet. I haven't seen it. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. It's a very interesting film. He's an interesting filmmaker, but this is, it's this crazy film about this alien guy who ends up in Harlem. And it's just, it's a wild story, but it's, it's very well done. Yeah. This was years ago. That film is not, it's not recent. It's probably 20, 25 years old. But anyway, I recommended it to this brother. And he said, Brother from another planet. He said that sounds too much like real life. Mm. <laughs> you know, so they—they they, are—they. They, I think humor helps them get through the day, just like it helps anyone else. Mm-hmm. And they're very funny sometimes about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's usually what I, and I think I said this in that chapter, that monastic humor tends to be of the moment. It's not jokes. It's people making a funny thing about what's going on, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I think is also very monastic. It's just you're in the present moment. You do something with it. You pray. You, you, but you recognize this moment of, of humor. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please. Take a breath with us and join us for this 30 seconds of silence. Um i do I just want to do one more plug for my personal favorite Acidia and me because of how much it touched me, but specifically the audio version because you read it, oh gosh,
2: and don't go there no, it changed my life it was well, wonderful. I, I thought that was a very interesting adventure i because. I remember because usually I'm really cooperative with my publisher there was one there was one uh, <laughs> just, there usually, was, just usually usually well yeah <laughs> because I figured then it, it makes sense to me because normally they will suggest a cover like the cover for the cloister walk. I absolutely love the trees mm-hmm. And they find good things one time I figure if I really am cooperative with them ninety percent of the time, if I do object to something, they'll take it seriously because mm. it, you know it'll mean something. Well, they had a cover for Amazing Grace; that was just awful. And I mm. said, I, I, all I can think of is Ophelia drowning in the in her pond, you know. <laughs> and and they said, well, the, the only and that was only one one objection I had, and they did change it. I still don't like the cover that much, but it's much better than what they had. They've got a great art department, but then. Um, They said, oh, how would you like to record your own book? This was a CD of me, the longest book I've ever written. Mm -hmm. And I said, to tell you the truth, I'd rather have a root canal. (laughs) Because I said, you can't fool me. I said, I know how hard that is. I know what hard work that is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, we really want to do it. And they actually hired a woman who does this for a living. She flew out. They sent her out to Hawaii. Mm -hmm. It put her up in a hotel. I think they had reserved a room for seven nights, but she was amazed that I was, my stamina was enough that I was able to. We did it in five, and she was able to go home early to our little girl, so she mm. was happy. But oh, God, that's hard work. We were yeah. working eight to ten hours a day on that. Yeah, And it was, it was, in the very first day, and, and they had a studio out there that has had a lot of famous musicians Mm. and she said she really wanted me to come to New York and that just wasn't possible Mm -hmm. and she said I hate going to these places because they don't know how to record they don't know how to set up for a book.
0: They know how to set up. I mean, they would had yeah. J-
2: Beyonce and Jay-Z had recorded there, a bunch of really famous people. should have gone. They had, a, they had a whole room for entourage people. They had foosball. They had all this yeah. crazy stuff. And I had no idea this place even existed. <laughs> and, and and But then she had to sort of cobble things together to make a, a, a space that would work for us. Mm-hmm. And she did the first day. And then she had me read, I don't know, about 30 pages to see how it goes, and, and we, we, I knew we were gonna be fine because as soon as I had finished doing that, she said, you realize we're going to have to do all that over again, and mm-hmm. I said, I expected that, and she said, you did, oh, this is good, and we were we were on. <laughs> I said, no, I know that you needed to get, you know, And but the thing about when you're recording with a background music or something like that, mm-hmm. you, you can fudge. But what happens when you're recording a book, if your stomach growls, you get a, a kink in your mm. throat, anything yeah. happens, you have to do it again. Yeah. It's really not easy. And, and, and I was happy when... Um, I'm glad you liked that because I, I got some mm. mixed reviews. I remember there was someone mm. on Amazon who really hated the way I, I recorded it. And I said, tell my publisher, tell my publisher <laughs> not to do this to me again. But I'm yeah. glad it worked for you. Yeah, uh, yes. but I, and I do think normally it is nice to hear the writer's voice.
1: Absolutely, you I know get it's, closely, it's, it's closer really, to what's happening in the story. It's
2: poetry that's really important. You can even understand a poem better sometimes. Uh, I remember I had John Berryman's Dream Songs, which are magnificent, crazy poems. Mm. And when I heard him a recording of him reading them, I understood them for the first time. Mm. I could follow them now. It was his voice. And Hearing Thomas Merton's voice, that was an experience. Mm. I really am so uh, glad. I'm looking forward to whatever you do with that, or if yeah. they're going to release any more of the, yeah. Yeah. of the tapes, it would be wonderful. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, speaking of poetry, you there was a um a prayer to Eve poem. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't happen to have that memorized, do you? Boy, I should. I don't have <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. If you were gonna. Tell someone where to start with your books, or if you were to recommend a new reader to Kathleen Norris, where would you tell them to begin?
2: Oh, I would start with Dakota. Okay. And and read them in order probably, because there yes. is some sense to the order. And Dakota's mm-hmm. a fun book because you can, it has lots of short sections and you can put it aside and come back to it. And then, then the cloister walk. Because I start talking about monks and coyotes in the back of, Dakota mm-hmm. and then I continue writing more about monks and nuns with the cloister walk and so there's kind of a, a journey yeah with my books. yeah yeah okay. great.
1: So I'm lucky enough to be here with you in Minnesota, but Kevin and Carl weren't able to join us so I am going to we just added them on Skype and uh, Kevin, Carl, do you have any questions or would you like to chime in on anything with us?
3: Well, I think the only question I have is a question we often ask uh, our guests, and that is, do you have a particular silence hero?
2: A silence hero. Wow. I think it would be people, you know, sometimes you see it in a courtroom or a, a, a news broadcast or something, people who are really listening even when other people are insulting them, but they're listening to the person um, and they're not responding, they're responding to the person and maybe not to the insult. Um, and good counselors can do that, spiritual directors can do that. Um, where they're just there's not a knee-jerk reaction, oh that God this person is insulting me and I have to get back at them. But they're really listening. And trying to respond in a more humane uh, way. So you don't see too many examples of that around. It's usually just you know, especially in, in television. But you know, people talking past each other or d- attacking each other. But when you do find that kind of listening and response out of that, I think comes out of silence and silence and listening. It's pretty impressive.
0: So, is there but, anyone in your life? that specifically embodies that? Because I, I, I get what you're saying, but I'm wondering, you know, is there a person like Thomas Merton or a certain poet or somebody that you feel kind of captures that for you and that you've met or know?
2: Yeah, I'm thinking of a couple of Benedictine men and women that... Even when they're in a, um, I've seen this at conferences or when they're being challenged by even a student in a very negative way, like trying to trap them into saying something or something, and they refuse to take the bait, and they instead are really listening to that person and their need and responding to it, and I always go, oh, if I could only learn to do that before I die, that would just be so wonderful because it, it really is a very loving way to be with people and it's it's really striking you really it's so striking when you encounter it and not to respond negatively to something that's negative it's 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 incredible and i think silence really helps them do that because you know that listening being willing to go deep into themselves and listen and out of the silence, they can respond to the person without being negative and fighting back or being catty or snide the way I'm tempted to be.
3: <laughs> the way most of us are tempted to be. Exactly. <laughs> thank you so much. And I, I have just one more question for you. And I, I, it's in response to the comment you made a few minutes ago about how, um, how liturgy is poetry. And thank you for saying that so much. I, I think that you articulated for me an intuitive truth there and so that was really really a lovely moment for me just to listen to you articulate that but i think my question is uh, given your your work obviously as a poet but but reading and reviewing and 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 celebrating and evangelizing many other poets over the years can you think of a poem or a poet or a collection of poetry that works as liturgy for you. So, kind of turning that around. Mm. You think of a of, of a poem or poetry that for you is especially liturgical.
2: Denise Levertov, in her later years, writing some of her religious poetry, she has some the Mass of Saint Thomas Didymus. She has a, a thing about the Annunciation. I think she captures that really, really well. Those two poems, in particular. It strike me and it you know it's funny when i when i was preaching at that little country church in in south dakota for all those years i very rarely used poetry in the service because i remember just being so irritated years and for years and years the only person you'd ever hear quoted was robert frost who was um, <laughs> doesn't represent the ideal Christian uh, pr- point of view <laughs> but <laughs> ministers would, would always use him in, in, in sometimes, and sometimes the poetry was fine I didn't have any objection to the poetry it just was the wrong context so uh, there was a poem by Jane Flanders called Planting Onions a very brief poem I used to talk about when, I think the text was the, the woman finding the treasure someone finding the treasure in their field and, and I, was, I knew I was talking to a lot of gardeners and they would understand her poem as, it, it had a kind of, it, it really is a prayer, and so I, I used that, but very rarely, I, 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 I resisted mixing the two, um, and I think I might, I probably used at least one of Denise Levertov's poems too in all that time, but I would always be very careful that it really fit the context of what I was trying to do in the sermon, and it would connect with the, the people in the congregation And no Robert Frost. Sorry, been there, done that.
1: (laughs) I I have to let you guys know, as soon as I came in here, I saw in the corner, there's a roomy quote back here that just says, you know, silence is the language of God, all else is poor translation. And I was like, oh, I'm
2: in the right place. And that was just in my office when I moved in here last week. That Mm. that was just in here. So Mm. so speaking of poetry,
1: would you would you mind reading the prayer to Eve? Oh, here, the Can prayer you, to Eve. Yeah. You found it, it. Yeah,
2: I did. Prayer to Eve. Mother of fictions and of irony, help us to laugh. Mother of science and the critical method, keep us humble. Muse of listeners, hope of interpreters, inspire us to act. Bless our metaphors that we might eat them. Help us to know, Eve, the one thing we must do. Come with us, muse of exile, mother of the road.
3: Wow. Thank you.
2: And that was partly inspired by Emily Dickinson. Um, In her letters, uh, she said, there is no account of the death of Eve in the Bible, and why am I not Eve? And that just really struck me. And I thought, well, no one's done a prayer to Eve that I know of, and so that's just kind of how it got rolling.
0: Yeah that's a, that's a wonderful point. I think that's what makes that so powerful. I apologize I'm sitting here just kind of speechless because I've just been entranced by listening to this conversation. Carl and I, you know, we were sitting here quietly listening so we were able to kind of communicate through text and everything and you would say these things and we were like enjoying each other (laughs) we were like oh that's amazing uh (laughs) so I really don't have too much to say I I just but I do want to say as I have this opportunity I am a little jealous Cassidy is in the room with you but at least I get to look in the camera here and tell you thank you so much for your writing
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you for reading it. I mean, you know, every book I've ever written, I always think, who in the world is going to want to read this? And it's such, and especially when you write poetry, there's usually the answer is just about nobody. So so writing prose has been a whole different thing that, that you actually end up with readers who appreciate you. And I have an author's Facebook page now and just... Just today, I had two people, uh, I answered, I just thanked the guy, you know, thank you for saying kind words about my writing. And it really is fun to have that kind of response now.
3: Kathleen, I'm a lay Cistercian, which is kind of the Trappist equivalent to a Benedictine oblate.
2: Oh, yeah, I've met, I've met some because I did a writing and spirituality workshop at New Mallory when Brendan Freeman was the abbot there, and I met a lot of the people who come once a month. They come once a month to the Abbey for retreat days and everything. It was a very committed bunch of people.
0: I
3: I have that same relationship with the monastery in Conyers, Georgia, Monastery of the Holy Spirit, and um, and I just wanted to share with you that I read the Cloister Walk during my novitiate, and it, mm. what I appreciated with it in that book was your honesty, and and I think that that's so important. And so uh, one of the monks loves to say that sometimes people who do religious writing get a little constipated. And I think what he means by that is they have a hard time just being candid and being honest. So thank you for for your writing, being very honest and very real. And I think that's a a wonderful witness.
2: Well, good. I'm glad you read it during that period. And I remember uh, one of the things I've always used for all my books uh, is having outside readers. And so with Dakota, it was two ranch families from Hope Church because I knew I'd made little mistakes that they would catch because I wasn't raised out there. I called a field a pasture. I mean, that's a big no-no. So, <laughs> um, Yeah, right. And and some things like that. But then with, with the cloister walk, it was a Benedictine woman and a Benedictine man. Can you read this and comment on it? And um, the brother who read it, said you know one of the things he'd been worried about was that I would romanticize their life. And he said, you don't do that, but there's a couple areas where it tends in that direction. So I was able to work on it and try to make it as honest as possible. And, and that's one of the reasons I quote so many people in the book, because I'm having them talk about their own lives. I'm not making up something about them. And, uh, and I thought that was an important way to, do, to try to do that. So I'm glad it worked for you. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for doing this.
0: Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversations about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, encounteringsilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website, connect with us on social media on Twitter at silence Podcast, or on Facebook at encountering silence and please visit patreon.com/encounteringsilence that's p a t r e o n.com/encounteringsilence to become a patron of this podcast your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social spiritual and physical well-being